Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. Do you find it difficult to live godly when everyone around you is not? You're not alone, and it's not a new problem. Over 2,500 years ago, a teenager was forced to live in exile in one of the most ungodly cultures the earth has ever seen. Despite the challenges and persecution, he found a way to honor God in everything he did. His example is still powerful for us today. Join us now for a six-part series on Daniel as we learn to live life in exile. see you. So before we get into the message today, I want to highlight that little announcement you just saw because that's the only time it's played and it might just be one of those out of sight, out of mind kind of things. But let me tell you what's coming on. Uh, Today is the end of our Daniel series, which means we are beginning something new next week. And it just so happens that's our global outreach series where we spend two weeks bringing in some guest speakers who do missions all over the world and talking to us about what God is doing around the planet and the mission that God's given us. And so with that, we have next Sunday one of the world's missions experts, and we only are able to have him come here because of a relational connection that we've had with him for many years. This guy travels the world. He usually lives on the other side of the planet, uh, is, is just doing great things all around, and he has written several books, established several missions movements, and it's a great privilege for us to have him. You will not hear him speak until Sunday, and then it will be too late to invite you to what he's doing before Sunday, which is this event on Saturday. What he's going to be doing is helping us understand how to make Jesus famous outside of the walls at church where we go to work, where we live, where we homeschool, where we have neighbors, and so forth. So I want to encourage you, come out. We've got lunch for you. We'll be here Saturday morning. You got one of these cards last week if you were here. That's what it's talking about. We'll be giving them out again on the way out the door. So who's going to be here? Oh, let's try that again. You want me to do that whole announcement all over We've got a guy normally lives on the other side of the planet written. I mean, come on. You're going to regret it if you don't come. All right, there you go, because he is awesome. So here we are. We are finishing our series on Daniel. We are finally in chapter 6. It's also part 6 of our series. And the theme all along has been learning to live life as a minority in exile. And what that means is that we now as Christians live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a post-Christian uh, nation. We live in a non-Christian world all around us. And so if we are going to live as Christians, we need to understand the world around us is fully secularized. That means they don't make their values and their decisions based upon what we see in the Bible. And if we do make our decisions and our values based on what we see in the Bible and try to live that way, then we're going we're gonna to be a minority. And we're living among them on, here on earth. So throughout this series, we felt like this is a pretty special uh, type of series that, that we don't want it to be something we just put behind us. If you were here last week, you heard me talk about that a little bit. So we came up with a, a really cool graphic. It's a lion's head that says, choose who you'll be, which, you know, Daniel and the lion's den we're going to talk about today. So uh, these are stickers. And, and I would encourage you to take one of these because here's the thing. Uh, being a minority in exile is a choice every single day. Every day you're going to have to wake up and choose how you're going to live, who you're going to be, the impact the world is going to have around you. So we wanted everybody to have one or two of these, however many you need. Put it on a computer you use every day. Put it on a mirror where you get dressed every day, whatever, and remind yourself every day when you wake up, again today, choose who you will be. So if you weren't here last week, didn't get one of these, drop by the white tent, pick one up on the way out. We also have really cool shirts with that on it that we sold out of last week. And so it just pays not to skip church. That's just the way that rolls. All right, so, you know, one of the challenges for us as living as a minority in exile is that it comes with a lot of resistance. 
It comes with a lot of trials. It comes with a lot of pushback. And so it's a fair question we have to ask ourselves is how do we view the trials and the hardships that we endure in this life? My wife and I moved here a little over 10 years ago to help start this church. And we were totally unprepared for what we were about to endure. We were really kind of naive with the idea, well, if we're going to do something godly, like start a church, and God told us to do it, so if we're doing God's thing for God, it's going to go great. You guys moved here with us too. Yeah, how did that work out? Yeah, okay. Well, it's working out great, but how did it go is a different story. And I have to tell you the truth. We went through some extreme difficulties. We had to liquidate our entire retirement that we had achieved up to that point. We went through all of our savings. We went more than six months without any income. We went through a very difficult pregnancy. We had people around us uh, that were supposed to be our leaders and in ministry that fell out of ministry and severely disappointed us. And some of them, we would even go as far as to say we felt kind of betrayed. It was an incredibly hard season for us. And I would love to tell you that we just, man, we just stuck to it. And we were like, but we're going to do this thing. Truth is, we actually put our house up for sale and said, God, if it's this hard to do your thing, you can keep it. Anybody been there? You don't have to raise your hands. And fortunately for all of us today, God did not let our house sell, and we're still here. And I tell you what, if I could look, and, and if I could look then to see what I see in front of me today, I would have said, bring on more trouble. Come on, it would have been worth it for all of the stories that I know from your lives, the things that we've seen, the number of people we've baptized, the number of people that have become believers here. I would have said, bring it on. We could take it all. But unfortunately, our eyes weren't always on what is here today, which would have been a spiritual vision at the time. Our eyes were on the trials of that day. And anytime we get our eyes on the trials of that day, instead of a much bigger picture, then we start to change how we're going to endure. Today, we're going to look at one of Daniel's trials. It's the last trial that is recorded uh, in the book of Daniel that he faced, and it's probably the most famous. It's called the, the Lion's Den, Daniel and the Lion's Den. How many of you have heard of that? If you know anything about Daniel, if you've ever been to church, if you've been to vacation Bible school, Sunday school, anything, if you've ever learned anything about Daniel, you know at least part of the story we're going to talk about today, Daniel and the Lion's Den. And some people would say it's his hardest, most difficult, maybe just because it's the only one they know of. I think it was probably as easy as trial, and I'll tell you why in a minute when we get there. So we're going to go straight through it, as we always do, because I know that uh, reading the Old Testament and the story is new to some of us, and we just kind of want to walk through this. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. If you don't, it's going to be on the screen. And if you do turn there, we're actually going to back up two sentences, because I want to set the stage. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. The last two sentences we read last week is where we're going to begin. It's the end of chapter 5. It says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. This is Belshazzar, the last Babylonian king. Remember, Daniel has been taken prisoner by Babylon. He's in Babylon, and this is in your history books where Persia, the, kings, the kingdom of Medes and Persians, conquer Babylon and overtake them. And so Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So it turns out, the most important figure we need to talk about today, you don't see his name yet. We're going to see his name in a minute, and it's Cyrus, king of Persia. He's actually the one in charge. He's the one you'll read about in your history books. So who is Darius? We believe he's most likely just one of his generals who has taken on a throne name for his governorship that he has over the empire that he conquered, which is Babylon. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and then over them three high officials of whom, guess what, 
Daniel was one. Here we go again. This guy's been doing this from the time he was about 14 or 15 in chapter 1 until now he's at least 80, and he continues to live in a way that impresses people. He continues to earn a reputation. And you could say, no, he had a reputation. His reputation was with people who are now dead or in prison. This is a new king from a new kingdom who comes in, recognizes what's going on. Pretty cool. And so one of them was Daniel, to whom the satraps would give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. What does that mean? The satraps were tax collectors. And so he wanted somebody with integrity, somebody with character. He found Daniel. He puts Daniel as one of these three people. Turns out Daniel's even going to outshine that. Let's read the next verse. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Wow. And if you followed the story, do you know how many times Daniel's been promoted and then new king? And then promoted and then new king. And, from, and here he goes again. He's just getting his old job back. And we read it like it's a big deal. He's already been here multiple times. But he's going to be over the whole kingdom under a new king. So, of course, people aren't happy. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. So then these men said, we shall not find any ground or complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. See, again, he is going to face pushback and resistance, trials, struggles, and even personal conflict with people simply because of his faith. Anybody in the room resonate with that? Where just because you do the right thing, you now get enemies that come after you for that? And why are they after Daniel? Really simple. They had what should have been the best job in the world. They were tax collectors. And what that meant is, when I come to you, I say, yeah, don't worry about paying your tax, but you'll pay me back later. You, you're going to pay me double the tax because I don't like you. And I'm not telling the king you pay double. I'm keeping half of it for my vacation fund. That's the way the tax collectors operated. They used it to curry favor or to skim off the top. And they've got a guy like Daniel in charge. They can't do that anymore. Daniel is honest, he has integrity, he's doing everything with character, and they can't stand him. And so they're ready to have him taken out. And so they say, if we can't get him for doing something wrong, then we'll get him for doing something right. All we got to do is take his faith and make it illegal, because he'll never abandon it. He never has. I don't think he will now. And all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days. What a peculiar rule. It literally makes no sense unless you're trying to trap one guy. One guy, exactly. That except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he did what you and I would do, and he went home and he never prayed again. No, he didn't do that at all. Here's what he did. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day in case they weren't watching the other two and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. As he had done previously. He kept doing what he had always done. And so then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. See, 
we end up with people stabbing us in the back. We feel betrayed. We feel disappointed. We feel just attacked for our faith sometimes. I want you to think about what Daniel was feeling at this point. How did these people know that Daniel would be praying three times a day? How did they know where to find him and when to find him? It's because Daniel had shared his faith. Daniel had been real with them. Daniel had been transparent. And in his effort to be genuine with them, they used that very information to stab him in the back. Daniel wasn't even commanded to renounce God. We look at this story sometimes and go, oh, I would do the same thing if I were in Daniel's shoes. I mean, if I couldn't worship God. No, no, no. All he was told to do is he couldn't pray for 30 days to God. You want to know the real truth? He was only told he couldn't get caught praying in public for 30 days to his God. And if you think about you or me, what would we have done in that situation? Well, we would have probably just kind of gone home and closed the windows, Daniel. Come on, this wouldn't have been that bad. Close the windows. Go in your bedroom, pull the curtains, and then you can pray. You know, I don't know about you. I am so grateful that our God is, is so full of grace that we can actually pray while we're driving down the street, you know? I mean, you can keep your eyes open. You can just talk to God while you're on your way to work. You can just walk through the mall, and you can be praying, and you can, you can just talk to God all the time. But Daniel understood the value of, even though I'm sure he did pray to God walking down the street on his way back to his house and everything, he understood the value of at some point you just got to stop just got to stop. And maybe some of us are missing this one. Matter of fact, here's a question for you. If somebody came to you and said, you cannot be seen publicly praying to God for 30 days, would anybody in here get busted? That's just for free. Daniel knew at some point we have to stop, get on my knees and say, God, help me. God, help me. All he had to do was just not do that publicly. It would have been easy. But Daniel, no. Daniel had to be consistent because here's the reason. He knew the only reason that he had made it this long. Again, he was 14 or 15 in chapter 1. Now he's about 80. 65 years. The only way he had made it is because of his dependence on God. He knew that was the only way he was going to get any further. Daniel was going to lose his life. Think about us. How many of us, when they tell you, oh, if you bring your Bible to work, if you talk about Jesus at lunch, you will lose your job here. And so we stop because we're afraid to lose our jobs. He wasn't even afraid to lose his life. It goes on in verse 13. So then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, seriously, and set his mind to deliver Daniel. You've got to be kidding me. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue till till the sun went down to rescue him. See, I want to help you understand what's going on here. A foreign general who has ruler over this empire has come and he's taken over and he has actually found a man, which he has no reason to find, who for whatever reason is so dedicated to his own God that he can close his eyes and go to sleep and know this man will not stab him with a knife. That he knows this man will make sure every penny will go from those people to him, and he won't stop and take any in the middle. He knows this guy is different. Something strange is about him, but it's also something he can depend on and he can trust. And if you can imagine being that guy in that position where everybody always killed somebody to climb the ladder, I think Daniel became a really good friend to him and definitely somebody he could trust very close. But then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. 
I don't know about you, but I would have killed somebody at that point if I were the king, because somebody comes telling me how to enforce my own laws, especially when we've already read the stories about the fiery furnace and the lions, I mean, all this kind of stuff. Be like, who do you think you are telling me how to run my kingdom? But anyway, he lets them get away with it. So then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. I'm going to jump to verse 19. The next morning, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me, but I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. Woo! Come on, man. Free sermon right here in one sentence. So go you, so goes your family. All right, anyway. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. One reason that these trials in our lives mess up our faith so much is because trials always involve people. At least almost always. Our struggles are with other people. And just like Daniel, we're going to be unfairly treated and we're going to be attacked for the things we do, both right and wrong. And our biggest issue is going to be revenge. We want revenge on these people. And we have unforgiveness in our hearts. And we're determined that this has got to turn out a right, a right way. And we get all caught up with the offenses we have with other people. We make enemies. But I want you to think, I don't know about you. I know what I would have done in this situation. I would have been a little ticked at this point. I mean, the dude threw me in to be eaten by lions. And Daniel, did you hear Daniel's response to him? Oh, king, live forever. Are you kidding me? Daniel once again speaks with respect and honor and grace to the very man who threw him into the lion's den. If it were me, I'd have been like, yeah, I'm alive and come on down here and get me out. I dare you. Who do you think? I mean, after all, God delivered me once. I'm pretty good. Like the lions didn't eat me. I don't think they're going to do anything to me. I'm ready to prove who I am, you know, but not Daniel. And as soon as he gets out, do we see him turn and say, those people, those people who accuse me, get them. No. God took care of that. See, here's for free. What Daniel understood, we need to understand. We get so distracted by our conflict with people, and we get so caught up in the bitterness in our hearts. But if we are doing what God has called us to do, and in that process we develop enemies then they become his enemies. And God always deals with his enemies. And if somehow in the process of living your life, you've accumulated enemies that are not his enemies, you need to ask yourself what you're doing. Verse 25, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. Very similar to what King Nebuchadnezzar had decreed. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever his kingdom, 
shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. It's a big decree. It actually got back to his boss. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the king now of the great empire that's on record. Why does that name matter? Well, we're about to see in just a moment. Now, I want to stop at this point and just kind of take a deep breath and say, why have we done this series? If you've been following this series, you kind of think, well, you know, Daniel just constantly stood out and did great things because Daniel had great character. And then as we go around the room, some of us are pretty good with being mediocre or mediocre plus, you know, somewhere in there. And we're okay just recognizing that other people can do something better than us. And so some of us would just look and go, man, Daniel just had incredible character. Eh, he got me beat. And we go back to life just as if we never heard the series. I don't think that this is a story about a man with incredible character. I think it's a man who had incredible character because of what he saw. And I think our character can be just as good and we can stand just as strong in all of the trials that he stood and we can have the same testimony if we have our eyes on a bigger picture. Unfortunately, our eyes are too often on the trials of our exile and not on something bigger. So I want to close out this series from here on out for the rest of today and, and bring this whole thing home with helping us understand what, what Daniel was actually looking at. From chapter 1 to chapter 6, a much bigger picture was happening. And sometimes when you read the Bible, you can lose sight of the big picture because, first of all, it takes a while to read. It's, it's pretty in-depth. And if you use a one-year Bible reading guide, you still have to read every single day to get through it in a year, right? And uh, some of us haven't read the Old Testament in a while, and the Old Testament's got so many stories. They just seem like all these little random stories. But they're actually all part of a very big picture. And a bunch of the Old Testament, many books, all have to do with this exile that we see them dealing with. And so I want to show you the bigger picture. We're going to start with something Jeremiah the prophet said before the exile. And then something that happened later that was recorded in the book of Ezra. I want you all just to watch this on the screen. So Jeremiah says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words See, Jeremiah is a prophet who constantly comes to the, the people of Judah, the Jewish people, and saying, you are not honoring God. So God has told me, turn from your ways, turn from your ways, turn from your ways, turn from your ways, turn from your ways. He's been doing this now for over 20 years. Over 20 years, they have refused to listen to any of his warnings. And so God comes through Jeremiah saying, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Think about the trials you face. I think one of the great humors is when we get to heaven, I think they're going to be like big TVs playing like a blooper reel. And you're going to see all those times that you were like rebuking the devil for what was going on in your life. And it turns out it's God. Imagine how many times. If Daniel wanted to say, I rebuke you, pagan king, for taking me into prison. But King Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant doing a greater thing. We've painted this picture as though poor little Daniel is picked up in Judah, carried off and put into prison by a pagan king in a pagan society, which happens to be true, except that pagan king was working for God. 
And so everything that was going on when Daniel worked for Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't serving a pagan king. He was serving God, which, by the way, might explain how he could show so much honor to someone whose values were so different from his because he recognized what God was doing. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. And then after 70 years, can you imagine if God came to you and told you that you hadn't listened to him and you were going to be corrected by him? And it was going to last for 70 years, already decided. Wow. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord. Fast forward 70 years, the book of Ezra says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, which happens to be Daniel chapter 6, Belshazzar is killed. Darius, the general working for Cyrus, comes and takes over. He's impressed with how Daniel lives, how Daniel is rescued from the lion's den. The word gets out. Cyrus hears about this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus just said, all of you who were taken prisoner, you're free. The gates are open. Go home, build back your temple, and we're going to find out later they even helped fund it. How cool is that? Now, here's the thing. I do not understand why, and when I get to heaven, one of my first questions will be why. I don't understand that, except for the fact I probably won't speak at all the first time I see God. But after a little bit, I'm finally going to muster up enough to go, God, why did you work through people? We screw everything up. We don't get anything right. Did you see the 12 disciples? One of them didn't last that long at all. I mean, seriously, we mess everything up, and yet God works through people. Here's the thing. When God spoke his word in 70 years, I am going to set you free, and I'm going to do it through this guy called Cyrus. He doesn't even know. He's not even that old yet. He's got to live for 70 more years before he's going to become a great king. He's a kid. I mean, can you just imagine, and God saying, but I'm going to put someone in a position who will make me so famous that no one will be able to ignore me, and it's going to cause Cyrus to do what I want him to do. What happened in between Jeremiah and Cyrus declaring that? What happened? One word. Daniel. Daniel happened. Daniel went through king after king, after King, You see, I don't think we fully understand what Daniel went through, all of the trials that he faced. We kind of read this as though, well, you know, chapter 1, he just said, yeah, I'm not eating your food, I'll just have veggies, I'm good to go, thanks. And then there was, oh yeah, I can tell you what that dream means, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get thrown into a furnace, but Daniel, he was good, he didn't have to go through that. So then he gets to the lion's den, and, and he gets thrown in that, but he comes out, well, okay. I mean, we just don't see the gravity of what he endured. So I'm going to walk you through a little bit of a history lesson, if you'll allow me, because I think this will help us, especially if you're visual or if you're a history kind of person. I'm going to put this slide up on the screen here. Daniel was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, king number one. And king number one took him into prison and, and held him for the rest of his life, Nebuchadnezzar's life, 
and, and then actually threatened to have him killed if he couldn't interpret the dream. But then Daniel survives that because Daniel can interpret the dream. God showed up. And then Nebuchadnezzar says that I'm going to have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego killed, except God showed up, right? And he went through trial after trial after trial with Nebuchadnezzar, and he finally gets to a point that Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm not going to mess with you. Nebuchadnezzar got humbled, right? Remember that? We talked about that. And then he comes back, and now he's restored. Nebuchadnezzar finally has it figured out. Don't mess with me. My name is Daniel. My God is the God, the Most High. How many times am I going to say this to you? Don't mess with me. Thank God we finally got that settled. What? He's dead. I got to start over? Yeah, you got to start over. Now there's a guy named Evil Merodach. He doesn't care about anything that Nebuchadnezzar had to say. You got to start again. Earn your reputation all over. All right, king number two. King number two doesn't live all that long. Now we got another guy and then another guy. We don't even care about their names. They're not that important. Then we end up with another guy. His name is Nabonidus. He lives for 12. He rules for 12 years, but the first six he rules by himself. So Daniel's got to impress Nabonidus. And then Nabonidus says, how about we rule with my son? Because I'm going to go to the beach house for half of the time, leave my son, Belshazzar, in charge. Everybody remember Belshazzar, the handwriting on the wall? That was that guy. Now Daniel's got to deal with Belshazzar. And so he's been through king after king after king, trial after trial after trial, constantly proving, constantly starting again, doing this all over to determine if he will stand for God or finally just give up and walk away. And then the Babylonians get conquered. He doesn't even know if he's going to just be sacrificed with everybody else. Here come the Medes and the Persians. He's got to start all over with king number seven. I want you to consider this. Daniel didn't deserve this, at least humanly speaking. I mean, if we go back in time, do you remember chapter one that said Daniel was nobility? Daniel deserved to live in a palace in Jerusalem, not in a prison in Babylon. That was his heritage that God gave him and then seemingly took it away. On top of that, Daniel was one of the people who actually worshiped God right. Anybody ever been in a crowd? In the crowd? Like you remember back in school when all the other people were cutting up and there was a substitute teacher and the teacher came back and everybody had to write an essay and you're going, but it wasn't me. Anyway, that was me, but whatever. That's Daniel. He's like, but I'm worshiping you, God. I'm doing this right. I'm telling these people, listen to Jeremiah. Don't do this stuff. What in the world is going on? And now these people get corrected, and it's going to take 70 years, and I've got to go with them. Ah. At what point do you say, you know what, God, if you're not going to leave me here in my nice house and treat me like I deserve because of how I worshiped you, I'm not going to worship you anymore. You had every right to be bitter at God. And on top of that, catch this one out. Evil Merodach and, and these guys, they set his king free. His king, King Jehoiakim, when, when Daniel was carried off into uh, exile, so was his king, and his king was put into prison. But after a while, they're like, hey, we think you've learned your lesson. We're going to let you out of prison, and you're going to come dine at the king's table with me every day, even though Daniel refused to do it. Now he's got to watch his crooked leaders sit and dine with the pagan king while he tries to have more integrity than his own king. Hello, anybody in America listening to me? We do not get our morality from our politicians. We do not get our morality from our bosses, our movie stars, our CEOs, our generals if you're in the army. We get our morality, we get our convictions, we get our character from our God. Just like Daniel. 
And when somebody that you think is more mature than you compromises like Jehoiakim did for Daniel, you still say, no, 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 I'm sorry. I think you're supposed to know better, and you're, but I'm not going with you. How many of us just say, well, you know what? I give up the fight. I'm quitting right here. What are your seven kings? What are your seven kings? You know, we're all good for the first one or two or three. Because you're a kid and you know, you know life's going to have some struggles. So in your 20s, you know, you get out of college, you don't get your first job. It takes a year, so you know you're working at McDonald's even though you got a bachelor's degree. And you're like, okay, okay, I can, I'm praying every day and I'm fighting this thing out and you finally get a job. King number one, yes. Then you get married. That's king number two. Single people. And that's when it's good. That's still a king. And then something goes wrong in your marriage, and I mean like the kind of wrong that no one should have to deal with, and that's king number three. And in your faith, you say, okay, we're going to work through this. We're going to make this happen. And then one of you gets very, very sick, and the doctor says, this is a condition you're going to have for the rest of your life, king number four. And then your marriage, it happens again. It's king number five, and you're tempted to say, uh, I'm done. Then you lose your job, all your savings, all your retirement. Turns out before the company went broke that the accountant embezzled all of the money and went to a South American country. Happened to my dad. Spent his whole life in a company. Came to work one day. There were chains across the door. The accountant was gone. What do you do at that point? King number six? King number seven, when they tell you you've got Parkinson's? What is it going to be? What is it going to do? Where are you going to be with your seven kings? Here's the real question. Are you going to outlast your seven kings? Or are they going to outlast you? And the reason that Daniel had the character that he had, the reason that he went through king after king after king after king, trial after trial after trial, is because instead of having his eyes on the trials of his exile, his eyes were on the end, the future, the hope, the promise. You see, Daniel heard from Jeremiah. He knew we're going into this thing for 70 years. Stop expecting it to be better. Get off. Get, quit that over there. Stop drinking their wine. Nope, we've got 70 years of this. We can do it. 70 years. His eyes were on what God was going to do and the promise at the end of the 70 years. You know why I think Daniel went and opened up his window and bowed down on his knees three times a day? I think this is what he was doing. God. There is any way in your mercy. Let it be 50. God, if there's any way in your mercy, let it be 40. 30. 20. But if not, then give me the strength to stand for you and to have the convictions no matter what comes at me for these 70 years. And when they said, you can't pray that prayer anymore, then I'm just going to go ahead and die. Because without that prayer, I've got nothing. I want to end by reading a passage to you. You know the second sentence of what I'm about to read. It's so famous. And we all quote it. It's on almost every Christian card you can buy at the bookstore. And people always tell you, 
the good thing that God's got for you, but we don't know its context. And I want to read to you the promise of God, but I want to read it to you in context this morning. Not only did Jeremiah say, you're going off into exile for 70 years, and unfortunately he got taken off to Egypt against his will too. He wrote a letter, a few years later, he wrote a letter to the exiles reminding them, God is with you. God has a plan for you. Stay strong. Stay strong. Here's his letter. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is God's promise, not only to them, but I believe to every single one of us. This is God's promise for the end of your seven kings. The only question we have to answer, the only reason we've done this series is when you get to king number four, will you walk away or will you still be with God? See, there's a reason Daniel was willing to die with king number one. There's a reason Daniel was willing to die with king number five and king number seven. There was a reason. It's because his eyes were on a bigger picture. And my question is this. Are your eyes on a bigger picture or are your eyes on the trials of the exile? When you look at your life, do you see a bigger picture or do you see the trials of your exile? We get so caught up. God, I need a new job. God, I can barely pay my bills. I can just barely pay my bills. I can't take my kids to Disney. If At this rate, I will never take my kids on a nice vacation. We, we just don't have enough money. We need more money. What if you never take your kids to Disney because you never get a better job? You work hour for hour every day of your life, and you can barely pay your bills. But you can pay your bills. Are you going to do that your whole life? What if the big picture is not you getting a brand new car and taking your kids to Disney? What if the big picture is when you die a not rich man that your grandkids follow God because of the way they saw you never compromise your faith despite the fact that life wasn't perfect for you? Let me ask you a question. How many of you in here would pay any amount of money to know your grandkids would follow Jesus because of how you lived your life? except how many of us will walk away from God because he doesn't answer some prayer for financial blessing. And then our grandkids don't see us follow him, so they don't either. They're watching. I don't know about you, but my end is not the struggle I face today. I've got trials today. Everybody in this room has a trial today. Are your eyes on a bigger picture your eyes on the trials of your exile because God has promised to end our exile also life on earth exile eternal home in heaven with him is our home if we keep our eyes on God on a bigger picture then we will endure we will outlast the trials we will outlast our seven kings 
King number four won't beat us. King number five won't beat us. King number six won't beat us. And king number seven can be a king from a new kingdom we've never seen and take us completely off our game and it won't beat us either. We'll beat all seven of them because our eyes are on our God and what he's doing. But only a few will. So will you be one of the few? Will you be one of the minority in Israel? I want to close by speaking to those of you today that can't claim that promise. I just said a minute ago, this is God's promise to you for the end of your seven kings. It's God's promise to his children and his kingdom. And you're not a child in his kingdom because you go to church. That's not how you get in. You get in because you say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. He died for me. I want to live for him. Maybe you're one of those people. You've been to church. Someone's been dragging you here. You've been visiting. Maybe you've been many times. Maybe this is your first time. But you have never known, never been told that you need to begin a personal relationship where you look at Jesus on the cross. Time collapses 2,000 years and you look and say, because you died for me, I want to live for you. If you've never done that, I want to help you do that here this morning. You don't have to do anything weird or stand up. Just go pray right where you're seated. Would you join me? Pray something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you for taking my place dying my death for being with me in exile and giving me a home after it I thank you for your love your mercy and your forgiveness and my simple prayer in this place today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom amen let's celebrate with those people Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.